Um, we've been covering a chapter a week, and today we're not going to do that. Um, in fact, we're going to break up chapter 8 over the next three weeks because 8 is sort of the center. Um, uh, this is, we've been moving through the rebuild, the rebuilding of the wall. The wall is now complete. Um, the fear of God, uh, or maybe a better translation is there is an awe um, uh, around God's movement amongst this this remnant that have returned to Jerusalem and have actually accomplished, even under, as, as Ian covered last week, under a great opposition um, and great trial, Nehemiah's faithfulness as a servant leader and his ability to rally the people and his deep conviction that God has placed upon his heart to do this thing. Again and again, Nehemiah is an author that is deeply concerned with us understanding uh, as the readers that God is a present God who communicates with his people. And Nehemiah's faithfulness has led to the completion of the wall. Now we see what the purpose of that was. It wasn't to keep people out. It was to, it was to bring the people together so that God can bring a reawakening to his presence um, and to his covenantal promises. And so chapter 8, we move from rebuilding, and now we move into the reawakening or the revival. And it's a beautiful thing. Now, I'm going to just, I'm gonna, we're, we're passing over seven because chapter seven is another chapter that's just a long list of names, but there's something um, important um, that we find in the very beginning of chapter seven, and I'm just going to read this to us so that we can have a little context. It says, now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem, for he was more faithful and God-fearing man than many. <laughs> it's a very subtle way of saying, the people that have been ruling are not awesome. But this guy I trust. <laughs> These guys I trust. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors, appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. So here we have, we have the construction of the wall, but the homes are not yet built. And this is significant. This is significant for us as we move into chapter eight. And then I, I think this is also important. Verse five of chapter seven, it says, Nehemiah, in verse five, it, it basically says that, then my God put it into my heart, into my heart. There it is again. Multiple times, God has placed upon my heart to do this thing, to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it, and then he lists out all the people that have returned. And at the very close of, of chapter 7, now, and keep in mind, the reason that he's doing this is he's bringing order to the, to the people that have returned They've come together to build the wall. Before homes are built, now he takes, he takes an assessment of who is returned. But the point is, is he's bringing them back into an understanding that they are God's covenantal people. And it says, the whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 245 singers, male and female. I love that. Just the singers are numbered. 245 singers, uh, their horses were 736, their mules 245, not sure why that's in there, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720, 
I mean, this is why we're not covering seven today, because I just have nothing to say to that. Now, some of the heads of fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury, and then they list out there's basically a bunch of money that's given uh, for the purpose of the rebuilding of the city, the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of homes. But here's what's so fascinating. It says, so the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all of Israel lived in their towns, and when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. The seventh month is super important. This is, the, this is a time of Israel's, one of Israel's most sacred festivals. It's called the Festival of Booths or the Festival of the Tabernacle. And the Festival of Booths, and this is so interesting, the homes have not yet been built. The seventh month was, this is, the, this is fall. This is a time when Israel was to, to take seven days and to, um, to, to live in temporary homes, temporary dwelling places. So it's significant that the, the wall's been built and now we are landing on the festival of booths and they are now going to reenact God's faithfulness to leading them out of Egypt uh, in, in into, the, into the promised land. And so when the festival of booths came up, um, this is a time in which Israelites actually willingly came out of their home and they would set up essentially tents to worship, the, worship their God. They're giving up the comforts of their home because they want to recognize that God is the most significant thing. The God is what needs to be central. In fact, the children, the, the Levites, one of my favorite passages, because we are called a royal priesthood, the Levites were the only, tr the only tribe in Israel that were not given a portion of the land. Why? Because he says, the Lord your God shall be your portion. This is a time in which all of Israel is meant to live out that royal priesthood, that reality, that our home is not here, is the point that we are pilgrims, pilgrims of dispersion, and that we need to consistently ask ourselves, the point I believe of this chapter, is that we have to consistently as God's people throughout history, we are so quick to forget to remember. We are so quick to forget to remember. That like sounds like a tongue twister, but it's a reality. We get wrapped up in our creature comforts and we forget the creator. That what do you have, said Paul, that God has not given you? What do you have that, that is not your mind, not your, not your home, not your possessions? And some of you have more than others. Some of you have very little, but it doesn't matter what you have, anything you have, the breath in your lungs, it's all a gift from God. And the question isn't how much do I have? The question is, is how am I utilizing all that I am, all that I have to serve God and his kingdom and his kingdom purposes. And this is why we as a people gather every week. Why do we gather on Sunday mornings? This is one of the big questions that I'm asking myself. Can we expect to bring people into spiritual maturity on Sunday morning by giving them a 50-minute message? And I realize, no. In fact, uh, you deserve better from me than 50 minutes. You deserve 30 minutes because really, what the church should be gathering on Sunday morning to do is, is this a communal thing? This isn't for you to just come and hear me speak or Ian speak. This is a, a time for us to come together with an expectancy to meet with the living God and to remind ourselves to remember who we belong to and what it is that we are called to live for. 
So I love this because here the houses haven't been built. They don't even have that comfort. And it lands perfectly on a time in which Israelites were not meant to be in their homes, but to be in this temporary dwelling place where they give themselves for a whole week to just the worship of Yahweh, the living God. So I want us to move through just the first section of chapter 8, and we're just going to go um, through, we're just going to go through verse, uh, through verse 8. And in chapter 8, um, now it's the seventh month, and the, pe- the wall is built, and now we see what the purpose of the wall was. It was never to keep people out. It was to bring people together so that they could meet with God. And in verses 1 through 3, we see this. And if you don't have your Bibles, there's a slide behind me. And all the people gathered as one man. I love that. Just note that. All the people gathered as one man. We've gathered together. What are we called? We are the body of what? Of Christ. There is one body. Each person uniquely plays a part in that body. We all have unique roles. But there is also a oneness. There is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek. All are what? One in Christ. We are the body of Christ. And I love this because here the people of God have gathered as one. As one. And really what this is signifying in this particular passage is that they're of one heart. They're of one mind. They've come together for the same purpose. And they came into the square before the water gate. Now this is super interesting. The water gate is actually, this is not the temple. The water gate is kind of the center of, it's at the gate that kind of leads out of the city and it sort of speaks to the centrality of the life of the Israelites. They're not in the temple, so it's not the privacy of worship, but this is about people aligning their hearts in a very public way. That that their lives are meant, they're not, that what, what we learn on Sunday is meant to be brought into our daily lives. It's meant to infiltrate into how we live, how we work, how we engage with our families, how we engage with our kids, how we engage with our neighbors. And I love this because here is this incredible moment of awakening and it's not happening in the temple, but it's happening kind of in the center of the city life because that's what God wants to do. And I think this is even a picture of pointing us toward that reality of the new heavens and the new earth where the temple of God is just God's presence everywhere. Um, And this is such a beautiful thing. Do we understand that as one people as the body of Christ, the purpose of our lives on this earth is to actually be kingdom outposts. We are to reflect in part what is going to come in whole when Jesus comes and restores everything that is. It's the great hope of the Christian life and it's what we are meant to image as we live out our lives in this fallen world. So they have gathered into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe, and here comes Ezra. And Ezra is really interesting. Ezra the priest has a kind of this quiet spirit. He often, uh, there's, there's points where he's so overwhelmed with the, the lack of faithfulness of the children of Israel. There's three times where he just breaks down and weeping and, and covers himself with sackcloth and ashes. And one time he even pulls away from the crowd and spends all night alone weeping and praying in repentance that God, that, um, for Israel, on behalf of Israel. Uh, and, and now Ezra, once again, the, this shy priest comes out of the shadows and it says, and they told Ezra, who's the they? The people. The people demand this. 
They told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. By the way, the, in the Hebrew, it just literally means from the beginning of light till noon. So that would be for us, well, let's see, if it's fall, then it would be, you know, so literally they're getting together like at 6 a.m. And the, and the word of God, the Torah, is being read to them. And not just read, but explained to them for a half a day. You know, there's been a, a, a conversation right now amongst, uh, amongst the teaching team of like, of what's the best kind of just exploring different ways of actually becoming a scripture-saturated people. And I've tried a lot of different methodologies of how to read through the Bible, but the funniest thing is, is it's amazing to me how many Christians have been Christians their whole lives and have never read the Bible in its entirety. Uh, as a guy that came to faith at 27, that just is baffling to me. And that's not, I don't say that to shame you. I say that, I say that to encourage you that there is so much to be had. But so, sometimes the hunger doesn't come uh, until you begin to feed uh, on it. And there's, there needs to be a commitment to it. And the more that we come to it, and, and I always say, listen, the first time you read through the Bible, maybe, I, like me, I understood like 5%. The question isn't, what about all the stuff I didn't understand? The question is, is what am I doing with what I do understand? How am, I, how am I interacting with this? And what is the purpose of the scripture? And why should we read it? And maybe we should read it because, A, it's a revelation of God. It's a pointer that points us to the living God. That God has revealed his heart to us and his mind to us. And he has given us a book, a very big book. It's a lot of words. It's, it's over a thousand pages long. But do you know how long it takes to read through the whole Bible? How long? So if you have an audible book of the Bible, Max McLean, the most famous audible book. He's a very dramatic reader. He's like, everything is like, I beseech you therefore, brothers. Like everything's just, it's slow, super slow. And it's still only 76 hours. Now, you're like, that's a long time. Is it though? Is it 76 hours a long time? Because that tells me that you could read the Bible in an hour a day, every 76 days. Uh, reading very, very slow. I'm talking like slow. And the normal speed at which most people read could probably read the Bible uh, in a half an hour a day in 76 days. Uh, listen, and if you're like, that's, that's impossible, why don't you try listening to the Bible? Some of you are like, I have ADD. You know, I always tell people, if you have ADHD, one of the best things you can do with modern technology is actually get an audible account and actually read along while you're listening because there's something about, we just need a lot of extra like, it's like, uh, it's like rails you know, on the tracks that just keeps our mind fully engaged in what's happening. But try different methods. If, you, if you're like, I can only handle, I can't even focus for five minutes, uh, you know, then start with five minutes. But some of you are going days, weeks, years, not reading the word and you can't figure out why Jesus isn't real to you. And I'm telling you why he's not real to you. At the most basic level, we have to begin by just asking, what is our devotional life like? 
Uh, and, and what is the blockage that's keeping us from coming to the Word of God? And part of it is maybe that it's a challenge of our own faith. Like, what do we expect to find there? Um, but I love this because the, I heard a pastor once say, man, if the sheep are hungry, feed them because they might not always be. And this is one of those moments in the Bible where the people are hungry. The people are hungry. And they're the ones that demand that Ezra the scribe bring the book of the law of Moses. I wish more people in pews would demand that their pastors actually preach the word. That would be a good thing. Bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. This is what I want us to understand. This is a turning point for Israel. In the past, when the Israelites gathered at the temple um, in the glory of Solomon, when when the temple was finished, what happened? It was marked by signs and wonders and miracles. It was marked by literally the Shekinah glory of God coming upon the temple, God's manifest presence. It's what you see in the wilderness, but now... This is moving the people from a people who are focused in on signs and wonders and, and, and all sad that God seems to have abandoned them is that the return to God is found in a return to the scripture. And this is the point in Israel's history where they become the people of the book. Now, I find it fascinating that the apostle Paul in the beginning of 1 Corinthians makes this, this, uh, this acknowledgement because I think the Jews often would slip back into this desire for the spectacular. He says, the Jews seek after signs and the Greeks seek after knowledge, but we preach Christ crucified. Nehemiah is a point in Israel's history where they became serious about meeting with the living God through being obedient to his word. Now, how did Israel lose Yahweh to begin with? Well, part of that is they... they replaced the, cre- the creator with his word. The law became their God, and then the law became impossible for them. They didn't realize its purpose, and they began to turn to the gods of the lands around them. And I think this is a picture that often happens in the church. If nothing will breed arrogance faster or discouragement faster than a worship of the written word rather than the worship of the word of God himself who is Jesus. The Bible is not God. The Bible is God's revelation to us and it is only living in as much as we allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate its reality. Without the spirit of God within us, the Bible is a dead book in your hand just like any other book. It's God breathed but that doesn't mean anything unless God reveals. And what God comes to reveal is himself. And the attentiveness by which you and I must come to the scripture is in this, is that when you come to church, are you coming here to learn some things about God or learn some ways to live? Because our Christianity is not built upon some sort of ideology. It's built upon relationship. It's built upon a relationship with God that should be manifested in our relationship with one another and even our relationship with the world out there. When we do go down by the river and we meet the man in the van by the river, do we love him? 
Do we reflect this reality of the living Christ? Because the word of God has pointed us. When I come to the scripture, I'm coming to meet with Jesus. There's an attentiveness. Lord, speak to me. What's, what's the word um, of Samuel? Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And I'll just ask you guys that question today. Have you come in with a readiness to meet with God? Is there, is there a desire to meet with the living God? Because if we're not coming together to meet with Jesus, then I think that actually what we're doing on Sunday morning is a waste of our time. This isn't meant to be a classroom. This isn't, this isn't meant to be um, some sort of therapeutic moralism that you come to get some self-help. This is a place where you come to meet with the one who spoke and the universe leapt into existence. And we, as broken, fragmented people who have sinful bodies and sinful minds that live in a sinful world, are actual conduits of the grace of Jesus. And that is a profound thing. What I want when people come together is lives changed. I want us to meet with God. Like, God is in this place, and I knew it. Not like Jacob, who said, God is in this place, and I didn't know it. That, you know, we, we think that's such a profound statement, and it is, but it's actually a sad statement because God's presence is manifest in the world. We just have to learn to attune our hearts and minds to meet with them which requires that we be a people of prayer, that we be a people of the word, that we be a people of service, and that we be a people that worship, which is what Sunday should be about. Sunday morning is a time, and worship is not the song sung before and after the service. Worship is something that we do 24-7, but when we gather as a community, communal worship is a unique experience when two or more gather in the name of Jesus and we make his presence manifest to the world around us. That's what should be happening here. And it's a beautiful thing. I always talk about, that's how my experience at Holy Trinity Brompton has been every time I've gone there in the UK. They just have taught the people to expect to meet with Jesus. And they do. And you sense it. When you go into the building, it's just there's something happening there. And I think it's, I think it's the whole body together that has come together and they believe they are going to meet with God. Do you believe that today? Is this something that you desire? Because maybe we just begin by asking, Lord, because I think some, so many of us, we just get so busy and we get so consumed with our work week. We're so tired by the time we come in on, on Sunday that we forget the purpose of it. And there's, I think it's a lot of reasons why people stopped. They, 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 the, the pandemic created a break in going and all of a sudden people began to ask the question, for the first time honestly, because a lot of things we do out of just rote repetition, they begin to ask the question like, why am I going? And the, and the, and the sad thing is that that wasn't necessarily a bad question. What they didn't like was the answer. They didn't like the, the conclusion they came to. I'm not, my life isn't different not going. <laughs> that's, that's why people stopped going, which tells me there was something wrong with what was happening when they were going. And I don't think that the problem is on, all on them. I think it's a communal problem in which we have forgotten how to meet with the living God. And we've turned church into a lot of things other than that. <laughs> and I want you to know that Jesus is here and he loves you and he is with you and he, he, he wants to honor your faithfulness to him just as you should honor him 
in your complete surrender to everything that he asks of you, which is, is to receive into yourself his grace. The people have come together and they are ready to hear from God. And I love this because here they are listening to the word of God be communicated in a public setting. We should do that sometime at Church in the Park. It's like, hey, we're going to gather at Colonel Summers at 6 a.m. Um, Evan's going to lead this next Saturday, right? Um, and uh, I'm just joking. Don't show up at Colonel Summers. But we should do that sometime. We should do that. We should go to Mount Tabor and we're just going to read the Bible out loud in a public setting. That would be rad. I think, we're, I think I'm going to do that. I'll give you the date soon. We should do it in the fall. I just commit to that. We'll do that in the fall. You've, you've heard it from me. I'll make it happen. We'll, we'll do it. This is the only reason I ever commit to these things is not because I'm that radical. It's just that I have a microphone, and if I say it in front of a lot of people, then I'm forced to do something that I would not do. So just know that's how it works, okay? So this is like, like man, that guy's serious. He's hardcore. No, I'm just actually... I'm actually maybe the biggest coward, but just knows that if I confess it in front of a lot of people, then I have to do it. And it's a, that's, that's actually all my, all my growth as a Christian has been me saying things, putting my foot in my mouth, and then being forced to do lots of things that I would not do naturally. So, uh, and that's been, a, that's Dora Pope's history, really. <laughs> so it's a beautiful thing. Um, in the presence of the men and the women and those that could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So let me just ask that question. Are we a people of the book, of the Bible? And that answer should be yes. The Bible is our authority. In a time in which the world is saying there is no truth, there is, there is nothing uh, that, you know, that, that, that we can know for sure, um, there is no, no barometer by which we can know what right and wrong is, um, we would say, no, that's not true. In fact, we would argue that Western civilization is actually built upon biblical principles <laughs> uh, because Western civilization owes its existence to the church, and in, in, that's a historical fact. Uh, in fact, it isn't until just recently that every courthouse in America had the Ten Commandments as a guiding principle for ethics. Um, but we also know as Christians that those ethics are meaningless if there isn't a transformation of the heart. And we're not guided by law, we're guided by the gospel. But that gospel is found in a book, which means we have to be a people of that book. We need the manual, if you will. <laughs> uh, and this is a beautiful thing. God has not left us to our own devices. He has guided us through his word. We need the spirit to understand it. But he has given us his, 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 his heart, his mind toward us in this beautiful thing called the Bible. And we need to be attentive. But notice now what happens, because in verses 4 through 6, we see that we see the people, a people that are of the word, uh, of the book, but now the word that points to God. Attentiveness now moves to, ex to that expectancy. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform. Literally, there's like a, in the Hebrew, it just means like a wood pile, like a wood tower, essentially a pulpit. And, and I sometimes wonder if like this is part of what kind of gave birth to like the, the Protestant uh, elevation. The, you know, within the Protestant Reformation, if you... If you go to churches in Europe, you'll see that the pulpit is generally like crazy high. Like there, some of them are so ornate. There's like Presbyterian churches where like there's like a winding staircase up into this giant pulpit. And then the, the preacher stands over the people. Now, part of that is because there wasn't amplification. And as, as Spurgeon said, you are not called by God to be a preacher unless you have a large chest. 
to project volume. I mean, you think about how did George Whitfield preach without a mic to like 20,000 people at once? I don't know how, <laughs> I mean, seriously, you remember that Will Ferrell ske sketch in SNL where he has voice modulation syndrome? Like that's, he must have had a voice modulation syndrome where he just always talked really loud, <laughs> which my wife just said that to me this morning. She's like, you're yelling at me. And I'm like, I am, and I realized I had my noise cancellation headphones on. <laughs> and I was like, you're not gonna believe what I'm gonna be preaching today, it's so good. She's like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> but this, 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 he gets up, and the word is presented to the people. And, and I think that there's a, there's a kind of a, a scary thing of that idea of the, the, the preacher elevated, but that's not the point. It's the word of God that's elevated. And, and here we find that they, they made for this purpose, for him to be able to present the law. And it says, and behind, beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, by the way, pregnant mamas in here, some great name possibilities here. And, Mas and Masaya at his right hand and Padaya. I know I'm saying all these wrong. I'm just saying it with confidence. Um, Michelle, Malkijah, Hashem. This is a good one. Hashbadna, Zechariah, and Meshalem. And on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands. I want to just point out a few things here, because the word that points to the living God is, is, is marked by an expectancy, but I want you to notice that there are actual things that the people do, and this gives us reasoning for some of our traditions as Christians. A couple things is, A, you know, it is kind of a sad thing, and I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I really appreciate something that Ian does is he always preaches with his actual physical Bible. Um, and in the early days of Door of Hope, I never went anywhere. I had this massive New King James Bible that was like a wide margin. And my eyesight was perfect, which it is very much not so now. Um, and I wrote all my notes and my sermons in the wide margin. I would preach out of that. So if you guys were here in the early days, I always, I had a little, I would, I started to get too blind for those notes, and then I moved to a little white piece of paper inside my Bible, and I would flip the, I kind of had this little quick way of flipping my notes inside my Bible. In fact, Ian just gave me, he's like, dude, I still have your, like some Hebrew notes from like 2010. Um, but that, the, the, the beauty of the physical Bible, and a lot of us have replaced the Bible with our smart devices. Um, and when I'm at home, I read my physical Bible. I just, there's just something about it. There's, there's a beauty about it. But one of the things I loved is because I have so many tattoos, I would have kids all the time like, like, hey, like, I'm thinking about getting a tattoo. And I'm like, yeah, what do you think about getting? And they're like, I want to get this Bible verse on my arm. And I'm like, why? And they're like, you know, I just thought it'd be cool witnessing to them. I'm like, do you notice any witnessing tattoos on me? And they're like, no, I'm like, don't get a tattoo unless you just want a tattoo. I'm like, why did you get tattoos? I'm like, I got a tattoo because I was picked on because all I wanted to do was dance and sing. And so I got tattoos to look tougher. That's the only reason I got tattoos. And then once you start, it's kind of hard to stop, you know? I mean, that's why I don't baptize with my shirt off because I'm, you know, probably the only pastor in the world that has stars tattooed around his nipples. And that's a, that's a problem. That's a problem. Um, and I, that's also too much information. Um, I could show you guys. You want to see it? Um, no, you don't. You're like, our pastor lifted up his shirt. It was crazy. He had so much stuff. We didn't know what was going on. 
but I just thought it was funny. And they're like, we want to get witnessing. I'm like, don't get witnessing tattoos. Why don't you start by just carrying your Bible with you in public? They're like, whoa. I'm like, you just said you wanted to put a verse permanently into your skin. Um, by the way, uh, Jan gave me the funniest little comic strip one day. I think you left it for me in my office. And it just, it was Peter talking to a guy in heaven and the guy's covered in tattoos. And he, he looks at him and he goes, I guess these really are permanent. That was the joke. So I thought it was really funny. It was good. It was a good joke. <laughs> but the, the idea of, of Scripture, like, tattooing it on you to be witness, like, that somehow makes Scripture cooler. Like, we're not trying to make Jesus cool. Like, once you have faith in Jesus, like, you've crossed the threshold of an, into very, very not cool territory. Like, no matter how good the chosen is, it's not going to be considered cool to most people. Um, and so the Bible it just is a, now that's a statement. You carry a Bible under your arm. I used to go into Powell's and carry my Bible under my arm. And it's so big, I'd have to like set it down. It's like, that's a statement. And people will ask you about it. Try that. Try it for a week. I should try that. We should get like a little, I know a church that loved to do really cheesy Christian things. And they had little, everyone on staff had a, had a small Bible with like a gun holster because it was the, or like a sword, you know, because it was the, the sword of God. <laughs> Evan, can we, can we get on that? That would be amazing. <laughs> You're like, see Door of Hope, they have like these weird, these holsters. <laughs> it's like, word of God, word of God. <laughs> Don't make me. <laughs> that would be amazing. Uh, but that, that, that expectancy is, is meant to be, I have the book open. I am coming to meet with God. I love this because notice the revival is not based around miracles and signs. The miracle is God's people have been brought together. There is a miracle when people come together and do anything together. Um, but there is really a beautiful miracle when people come together to worship the living Christ. I think we have the wrong idea of what a miracle is. It's a miracle that we get to gather every Sunday to worship Jesus. It's a miracle that I get to call you brothers and sisters. You know, it was a miracle to me this week. We've, we've a staff as a staff, and it was so beautiful. The staff as a whole, basically, we put on vacation Bibles, Bible school. And then we ended yesterday. So we worked every day this week. We did the rummage sale yesterday. Me and Joe opened it up. I think I got to invite like four or five people in the neighborhood. I had four people say, you're the pastor? And I'm like, yeah. It's like, when, when is service? People... People want to come. They just don't even know. They don't even know this is happening. Uh, it, unless they live in the neighborhood and they just see it as a nuisance, but they're not putting it to, to, together that this is a place where they can come and meet with Christ. This woman actually asked if it was okay if she came. I'm like, of course, that's the whole reason we exist, is so that you could come and meet the Jesus that we love. And this, I was like, what a miracle. Like, these neighbors are so, and people, we actually had a neighbor across the street give a donation thank you for all that you guys do. What a beautiful thing. There was no hostility. People were like, stupid Christians. Nobody, nobody did that. I had two guys come that were so stoned, and they showed me the funniest card deck I've ever seen in my life, which was, it was just called awkward, it was like awkward, awkward family photos card game. And it was just, and he was like so excited, he laid it out. And I didn't care that he was, that he smelled like he'd been inside a bong. I immediately told him about Jesus. Because I thought maybe on that spiritual level, he's going to be real open to it right now. 
And, and he, said, he said he wanted to come to church. His name's Darren, pray for him. Um, and I even told him he smelled good. Uh, no, I didn't. <laughs> but I, I think about the, hanging out with the kids all week. What a miracle. I, I did crafts with the kids all week. It was so fun. They were crazy, but it was fun. And we did do something so dangerous, and I'm so glad that we didn't get a lawsuit, because there was one day where every child had a hammer, and we gave them a nail. <laughs> and Darcy's like, I sent her a picture, and she's like, that's insane. And I don't think anybody should know about that outside of the church. But we made these little shields of faith by hammering little, little spots into the, into the shield. And it was so... It was so sweet. And I'm like, this is the miracle. This is what it means to be a people of God that come together and see it as a gift. This is what I mean when I talk about looking for pinpoints of grace. Finding the place where God is meeting with us. And you open the book and bless the Lord and the great God and all the people answered amen and amen. I want to notice two things that, that the people do that I think is something, if you ever wonder why we do this in church, they stand. They stand before God. And that standing is, a, is, a, is an act of rep. You know, when it used to be old-fashioned days. If someone came into the house um, and, and the kids are sitting down, they would have to stand up and shake the hand of the, of the person coming into the house. That was a, it was a sign of what? Respect. It's a sign of respect. Um, and I remember one, one Christmas, I mean, just generationally, like... Uh, it would, be, it would be considered highly inappropriate, even it, actually in many places in the world still today, to go into a, into a church on a Sunday and wear a hat. I remember one, one Christmas that Tim Mackey wore a, wore a beanie when he was preaching, and my granny, who's passed away in 93, English war bride, she's like, he is so good, but he should not be wearing that hat. Um, but there, but the, you know, you're like, well, that seems kind of legalistic, and it's weird, and of course, we don't ask the people... I mean, I think Ian preached with a backwards baseball cap last Sunday. So we're, we are pushing the envelope on what I call lowbrow liturgy, okay? Um, but, but there is something to be said about the beauty of, like, there's reverence. I'm going to get cleaned up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to come as a reflection of what it means to be an image bearer of God. And I want to I honor him in everything that I do. And that may be an over-the-top, you know, what is it, cleanliness is next to godliness kind of idea, but the, the, the point is, is that there are things that people have done historically as God's people to, to be marks of reverence and awe. So there's a reason why we say stand up to worship our king. There's a reason why we tell you to bring your Bibles. There's a reason why people, if you've ever wondered, and maybe you, you're new to the faith, or maybe you just didn't grow up in a church tradition where, you know, there is, a, there is a, within reform movements, there is a deep leeriness of any sort of, um, uh, any sort of personal response because it would seem, because of this um, fear of drawing attention to oneself. And so there became, it almost became like a completely not kosher thing to raise hands in a church or to do anything that would draw attention to yourself. And so Reformed churches generally don't do that. And yet the scripture, again, it's funny because Reformed churches are so fervent about honoring the word of God. And yet the word of God tells us, I command that men lift hands everywhere when they pray. We don't do that. I remember the first time I felt the call, uh, this movement on my heart to raise my hands um, during a worship song, and I could not figure out why. And I knew that part of it was that I had this, this fear of man 
And it was like Jesus put on my heart. I, didn't, I hadn't even really seen it modeled in the church I was in. I just felt like, why do I feel like lifting my hands? But why do we lift our hands? Why do we lift our hands? We lift our hands. Why does a child lift his hands or her hands to be picked up? Why do we, why do we put out open hands? Because we're empty-handed and we're recognizing that God is the giver of all good things. And we come to our Heavenly Father and we say, Lord, thank you. Thank you. And there's a power and a beauty when a community of people, one of the things I, I appreciate about Bridgetown is, is there was just an expectancy and it was, it was modeled beautifully in, in, in the worship. And people sang, everybody sang, and hands were raised and people, and it wasn't like people running up and down the aisles dancing or something. It, was a, it, wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't a service of chaos um, it, was, it, was, it was just a beautiful expression of these people are meeting with Jesus right now. And if you feel self-conscious when you worship, why? Because we've come here to meet with God. We've come here to meet with God and he deserves our praise and he's given us physical bodies as a means of praising him. Lifting our hands, as you'll see later, getting on your face, prostate, before, um, before the, did I say prostate or prostrate? I, every time I say that word, I, I think I just said prostate. I did. I did. That's not what I'm talking about. It's why I rarely use that word, because every time, right before I say it, I'm like, I think I'm going to say the wrong one. I think I'm going to say and then I psych myself out. It's good. We, just, we want healthy prostates in this, in this church, healthy ones. Men, get checked. <laughs> There's a reason why we have physical bodies, and it's not for that, but there is a reason why... There's expression. You have people laying on their face before God. You have people standing in worship. You have David dancing. You have voices lifted. How many singers were there? Notice they kept track of the singers, all the people that could bring and lead the people in worship. It's a beautiful thing. And the great God and all the people, he blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands. Finally, the God of the word, worship. We have the people of the word and we find the attentiveness, a readiness, which leads to the word itself that points to the living God and there's that expectancy. And finally, we close with this, the God of the word, which leads us to worship. Nehemiah chapter eight, verses six through eight, it says, and they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They just went from standing in reverence as the word is being read, listening with, with attentiveness, then standing in reverence, prayer, lifted hands, and now the presence of God is being felt and the response is they lay themselves at the ground. This is a picture of total surrender. They bowed their heads and worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. Have you ever come to a place where that has happened in your life? I remember my breakthrough in my anxiety season was that I was in an open field on the Deschutes River and I'd been fasting for two days and I was begging God to deliver me from my anxiety and it was crippling me and I just, I, I thought I was losing my mind, which I was. And I just remember I came to this field and I just got on my face. I literally just laid in the dirt and I wept and I wept and I cried out, God, please help me, help me. And it was like, that's all he was waiting for. I had stopped asking for help. 
I didn't surrender myself to his help. I'm like, fix me, but I'm not going to actually surrender to you. And it was like, he just, it's like I became embittered that I felt anxious. And, and so I stopped asking God for anything. Maybe I was afraid that he wouldn't help me. Maybe I didn't ask because I was, I was afraid of what the answer might be. But the confidence of a child with their parent is if a child is young enough and the parents are good parents, there is nothing that they won't ask their parents. They will interrupt people to ask you. They'll climb up the front of you in front of people. They don't care. There is a reckless faith when it comes to children with their parents. And Jesus said, unless you become like little children, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. God wants us to actually come to him and ask of him. You have not because you ask not. And sometimes it just requires that, that sense of, I just need to get on my face before the living God because the body actually often models what's going on in the heart. You ever, I've done counseling where a couple comes in and one of the, one of the couple or both of them just arms crossed and they're communicating what's going on in the heart. I am closed off to this conversation. I don't want to be here. I'm here because my wife made me become here. I'm here because my husband made me come here. I, neither of us want to be here. We're here because you made us both come. They, but it's funny how much the body reflects what's going on in the heart and the mind. You see people, I, I just saw a, a girl that I could just tell just struggled with anxiety and self-consciousness. And, and she just, she carried herself in a, in a way that just communicated a lack of, of confidence in her, in her being. And she's this beautiful young girl. It made me so sad because her posture just communicated this, this lack of self-worth. Isn't it funny? Like when I went to Spain, one of the things I noticed is that the men are very proud there and they, they're all, they're not very tall, but they seem really tall because they always walk with her. They're like, ah! Like <laughs> you can call it toxic masculinity, you can call it whatever you want, but they were, they're tough. They're like, they just have this, they, 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 they present an energy uh, that, that their body communicates. And it's, it's like even their dancing communicates that. And I think that this is as Christians, there should be a posture, a posture of humility, an outward focus. The saints are people that, who are wild-eyed looking out into a hurting world. And we as Christians should have that same kind of just a deep burning love of God that creates a burning love of one another. And it's manifested in how we communicate. It's why we hug. It's why we, it's why we smile at one another. It's why we greet people, because we want people to know that they are seen. We also want to communicate to God that he, we recognize his presence. And sometimes we're gonna recognize it even when we don't feel it. We're just going to honor that reality because sometimes the heart follows even the body. And that's why we have to do certain things to put ourselves in a posture that prepares us for, for worship. So I would say, if you sense God's presence, respond to it. If you don't sense God's presence, make the body reflect what you want the heart to feel. Maybe if you don't feel like lifting your hands, maybe you should lift your hands, that's my point. Do the, do the thing that honors God and what I think you'll find is God's presence in the midst of it. I love this. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelita, Azariah, Jezebed, Hanan, Peleah, the Levites, help the people to understand the law. 
while the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the same so that the people understood the reading. With worship of the living God came illumination, and I love this, Ezra is not the only one who teaches, but there is all these servants that are going around explaining what it is that is being heard. I love this, in the New Testament, Jesus says, and I will send to you a helper. I will send you a helper, the paraclete, and he will bring to remembrance, and he will teach you and guide you into the light. That he will bring to and I think that we have all have the Spirit of God, which is why we need one another. God teaches us by His Spirit, but He teaches us by His Spirit through Spirit-filled conduits, human beings. And I love that it shows that the necessity of a community for the community to learn together. We need to help each other learn what it means to follow Jesus. This is why, ladies, you should be going to the morning or to the uh, Monday night Bible study uh, with Brett if you have the ability to. She's an incredible teacher, and she loves teaching the women, and it's through 1 Corinthians right now. And we're going to start one for the men. And there's a Daniel study that's happening in the week with Pip. And there's morning prayer. There's all these things and ways that we want to help you grow into maturity. And they're available for you because it can't just be done on a Sunday morning. And I love this, this picture of a communal help. People going around. But I love it. it to me, it's almost a picture of the Ezer or the Azer, the helper. Um, helping understand what is being heard. And it all comes out of worship. And there is clarity and an understanding and a common vision. This is beautiful. But I want to just close you with this statement. Because all of this for us as Christians points to one reality. The God who is the Word. The Word that reveals God is our Bible. But we must understand that Jesus himself said, if you knew the Scriptures, you would know that all of it speaks of me. And in John 1, we are told, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Logos, the living Word, the Word in action. Everything that God has to say and has said is said and continues to be said in and through His Son. This is why there is no other name under heaven by which one can be saved. Hebrews 4.12, when it refers to the Word of God as living and active, it's not speaking actually of the Scripture per se, it's actually speaking of the, the word used as logos, it's speaking of Jesus. That He is the embodiment of Scripture. He is the perfect fulfillment of the law. We are not guided by law as the children of Israel are, because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is the end of the law. This is why love is its fulfillment and why we need the Spirit of God who pours the love of God out in our hearts. Luke 24, 32, this is what I entitled today's message and this is what I want for Door of Hope more than anything, is I want us to be a children that are a part of the fellowship of the burning heart. The disciples on the road to Emmaus after Jesus' death Jesus is resurrected and he appears to them on the road to Emmaus and they don't recognize him. And they're traveling with him. And that evening they begin, they, they're talking and Jesus has been sharing with them scripture, talking with them about the Messiah and they still don't recognize him. And as he breaks bread and blesses it, all of a sudden they are given the ability to see that it's Jesus and he disappears. And this is what they say in Luke 24, 32. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road 
while he opened to us the scriptures. Are you a part of the Fellowship of the Burning Heart? Let's pray.